0: I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. In fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do, to become stronger. And if you care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth. This is the subject of my newest book, which I wrote with my good friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Employees, colleagues, even family up their game. It's based on my coaching methodology that I've worked on over the past 30 years, brought to you in a practical step-by-step format that you can start using immediately. You can get it wherever books are sold. To download a sample chapter, either in written form or audio version, visit BregmanPartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word, BregmanPartners.com forward slash new book. And if you've already enjoyed You Can Change Other People, please consider leaving a review on Amazon to help others just like you discover the book. Now, on to today's episode. With us for part two of the Bregman Leadership Podcast with Jim Lair is Jim Lair. Uh, Jim is a renowned performance psychologist. He started the Human Performance Institute. He uh, wrote many, many great books. Uh, the Powerful Engagement was one that I really loved, and Leading with Character is the one that we're going to be talking about a lot today. Also, uh, if you have not listened to part one, please go back and listen to part one because it's a terrific uh, fun conversation. Jim is an amazing guy, and I'm so happy to welcome him back for part two of the conversation. Jim, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to do round two.
0: Okay, so, so Jim, we were uh, talking, and, and we'll just sort of ground the conversation in, in this idea that, you know, winning is everything until you've won. And then it's you know often not everything, and and that and that we are misguided by that approach. And you uh, have said that you know you you have 17 number one uh, um, medalists, top people in the world. You you are a performance psychologist, and you've helped them. And one of the questions I want to talk about in this in this conversation is, have you ever watched the show Billions? Do you know the show Billions on Showtime? No. OK, so there's this performance psychologist in Billions uh, uh, called, whose, whose name is Wendy. And, and she turns people around like they're, you know, they're on a losing streak and she has a conversation with them and she turns them around. And so I want to know what the secret to that is uh, in, in, in sports. But I also want to um, I, I want to delve into this idea of character. So you start the book Leading with Character with this uh, terrific line that somehow against all odds you were born and i i love i love that line i i remember my first moment of consciousness as a kid was when i like looked at myself and i'm like oh my god i'm a person like there are billions of there's in the history of time there have been like 127 billion people on this planet and i'm not any of them I'm I'm one. I'm here now in this moment, in this place. Wow. Like, like, wow. Tell us what you do with that moment. Well, you made the
1: cut <laughs> through no fault of your own, no effort of your own. You made the cut. You won the lottery of life and you can't take any credit for that. You know, you had no choice in that. You had no ability to influence it, but here you are. And now you have to decide, well, what the heck am I going to do with this gift? It was purely a gift. And I can do whatever I want to with it. And now, I, now this issue, you know, for me, Mark Twain's uh, quote is one of my all-time favorite. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you found out why. <laughs> and, and until you know why the heck you're here, why you're gonna scale the mountain, why you're gonna play this Monopoly game with your son. What is the real reason you're playing with your son? Taking that time out when you could be out watching your car, you could be watching television, you could be talking politics. Why would you choose a Monopoly game? What, what is the real end you hope is accomplished there for you, for him, and for the other adults at that table? If you get the purpose right, it changes the game. If I change the rules, the purpose of golf, the golf, the way you score golf is it's uh, how many strokes in the round in the shortest period of time. So you have to, you'd have to learn how to sprint. You'd have to all the entire game would change. There is this thing called speed golf. And so what you're trying to do is make sure that you understand what the scorecard is that matters most and get that priority in whatever time you have. And uh, the more we understand that this gift of life that we have, we don't have a lot of choices. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your hair color. You didn't choose whether you were handsome or beautiful or not. You didn't choose what talents you have. You didn't choose what country you were born in. You didn't choose what decade you were born in, what century you were born in. It goes on and on and on. There are very few things you had choice over. But one thing you do have choice over, what the heck do you do with this life you've been given? And since you have a gift, normally you are in some way, you know, responsible for what you do with that gift. I mean, do something extraordinary, make make sure that, how many of kajillions of people didn't make the cut? And the fact that you were born in this century on this continent, with with parents that you have that are extraordinary in many cases. So I think it's really for me it's very important that people come to terms with the fact that you've got to give something back because you were you know you received a gift as opposed to you know kind of cursing the day you were born because it didn't work out right. You know there are uh, there's a way to frame this up and to understand and for me everything I do with an athlete is to make sure that we ground it in a clear understanding of the purpose for everything they do, including why in the heck are you pursuing competitive sport?
0: Yeah, and I mean, once they
1: get the purpose right,
0: that's an important question. So, like you sort of say, okay, I, I'm I'm born at this time at this period, and and you ask this other question, like, what's your impact so far, and what kind of an impact do you want to have? And it's interesting to think about sports because sports, I, I, people might kill me for this, but sports don't matter like sports are for fun. Sports are, I mean, there's a lot of money in sports and there's a lot, you know, and there's prestige and there's, but all, but you know, it's not, and I guess maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe sports improves people's lives because they watch the sports. But if you sort of think about, okay, so there's hunger in the world and there's disease in the world and there's Uh, dictatorships that that create oppression in the world there's democracies that create oppression in the world there's there's all of these things and in terms of how you're describing it i would think you would say the most important thing is that we look for where we can make an impact on this world you know we're like living in a time where you know racism is at the forefront and like where can i make an impact in this world to improve the lives of people and and yet um, we're talking about you know from a your sport I mean you you actually deal with much more than sports uh, and you know you've worked very very hard around around uh, helping people perform in every aspect of their lives but I'm curious about that that element of like impact. So
1: again, this is is such an interesting area to really talk about. You you know you you have to realize that. You know, let's just say youth sport. Why do you want as a parent, why would you want your kids to play sports? Because in a sense, wins and loses doesn't matter. But I will tell you what does matter. It's who your kids become as the result of all the stresses and pressures and injuries. That can be a fertile ground for preparing them. Sport is a compressed version of life. And if they learn to make mistakes and get over them and learn how to do things more effectively and efficiently and learn how to be a stronger, mentally more focused, positive, character-driven purpose because of that, that's a gift for a lifetime. And then they can put that into effect for the rest of their life. So coaches who believe that the only real criteria for success in in junior sports is winning and that's how they run their life. Those are very dangerous people for me. And I've run across hundreds of those coaches and, and, and leagues and everything else. It's an obsession with winning. And it actually it's to the detriment of the development of those kids. The greatest coaches in the tradition of John Wooden realized that basketball was simply a way to create learning opportunities for these young boys to become extraordinary human beings. And he was revered by everyone who came under his tutelage because he got the purpose right. He understood what it was and he lived it. And so what what is the value of professional sport? Professional sport is entertainment. It's entertainment and it's not entertainment, it's a job for for the professionals. And even there, who they are becoming as a professional athlete, is more important than actually a lot of the things that happen to them um, in, during the course of their professional careers, because there'll always be a career afterwards. And you know, I can give you, I could tell you lots and lots of stories about what you know, what were the consequences of this feverish, almost obsessive need to win at any cost, and where did they go after? the screaming and yelling on the field no longer was there. So for me, it's it's always the same. It's how can we leverage whatever we're doing, the Monopoly game with your son, um, anything that you're doing in a competitive junior or even the who are you becoming as a result of getting to college and going and playing on the college teams or not playing and you're in some performing arts or doing music, All of those things are helping you. You're investing extraordinary energy, and there is a consequence. You're growing something. And the most sacred part of the person is their their character, who they really are in terms of their ability to, uh, to make moral and ethical decisions. And the book, Leading with Character, is all about building a personal credo that it's not someone else's, but it's your own standard for what you should and shouldn't be doing, where you should be putting your energy based on your values and your uh, uh, priorities, and how do you live a life so that at the end of your life, I call it getting home. Getting home is, when I ask you what you're gonna have on your tombstone, getting home is having those four reality that represented your life. And we all want to get home. We all want to end up someplace. And it's probably not just being a professional athlete or winning a Monopoly tournament. It's going to be far more important uh, that they understand the context and why we do this. Everything we do can be leveraged to become a stronger, better human being and getting a little bit closer to getting home on our life navigational system.
0: And that's the answer to the question of for the sake of what? Meaning anytime we do anything, we should be asking that question for the sake of what? 100%. 100%. You also say something interesting, that leading with character is not an instinct. It's not a natural human response. That the natural human response is to put ourselves and our needs first. And that the morality system that we all inherited is programmed to consider that um and and that's like a survival instinct like a survival instinct is how to um this might seem like a strange question but you know what if that natural programming is right like what if somehow it, it 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 feels like potentially a risk to put others first because you might lose the game then or you might and i know it might sound crazy but i i do think many many people hesitate on that point like i think it, it is a natural instinct and it feels like a risk to say, you know, this is about character and not about winning.
1: So there are two things going on as I see it in this um, conflict between, you know, fulfilling, you know, your own priorities and those that are connected to other people. In evolutionary terms, those that were connected to others that people could rely on, you had compassion. When you had a tough time, someone else came up and helped you. When you were ill, when you didn't have food or shelter, people stepped up and you developed this interdependence on one another to survive. And those that just went off and did their own thing and were highly independent and just were kind of one offs, they didn't survive. And so our genetic link, our 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 lineage, has really um, taken us to this very deep sense of our connection to others. However, when we come into the world, our whole world is about us. As a child, you don't see the lens at all in any other way than I want everything I want. I want it now. It's all about me. And as you develop, Um, Your parents are trying to help you to be more polite to be able to treat your brother, you know, with some kindness because he's going through a tough time or and parents are always trying to take them out of this obsession with themselves this total and complete narcissism in a sense, because in some way parents know that that will not serve them well going forward. It might help them scale a particular mountain because they actually, I work with a lot of, let's say, tennis players who become prima donnas. And because they can hit a tennis ball better than everyone else, it's almost like everyone else should should uh, carry their bags and the parents go, well, I'm going to let that cheating go or I'm going to let all that, uh, you know, really, really dis." Yeah. this coloring look about how we treat each other or how she treats everyone else. I'm just, I'm going to overlook it because they're under so much stress. You couldn't make a more serious
0: mistake than that. Right. You mentioned Dan Ariely's research where he right. says that our, our behavior is fundamentally driven by opposing motivations. One, we want to really view ourselves as possessing good moral character. And two, we want to benefit as much as possible from taking <laughs> shortcuts, which you sort of say is better known as cheating. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, we want to. there. He calls it the fudge factor. And the way we're always running our life is that we we want to see how much we can get away with in fudging or cheating and still feel good about ourselves. That's our moral calculus. And I, in the book say, let's, let's don't use that as our moral calculus. Let's set something up that is a a lot more defensible and probably get us where we want to go to get home. And so I put in place something that takes about 150 days of hard work in a journal and journaling 10 minutes a day to build your own kind of reference point your what I call a personal credo uh, to really determine what I should or shouldn't do here where should I put my energy and how do I really get home what is it getting home for me really going to mean and how do I get there.
0: So um, let's let's you know we probably should have done this 45 minutes ago, but let's define what leading with character is. Well,
1: you know we're all leading. Everybody's leading everywhere you go, and you lead with your energy. So you can lead with really negative energy. You can scare the heck out of people and get them. You can be a drill sergeant at Coronado and scare the heck out of people to do things they never thought they could do and push them past exhaustion. Um, uh, you're leading in your community. You're leading in your home as a father or mother. And what I want people to understand is the power of a leader. And we don't necessarily need leaders when things are all going great. But the highest form of leadership, in my judgment, based on all the years of work, and I'm a data guy. I mean, I am. I'm a nutcase for science. The most important leadership role you have in any situation is in the moral and ethical area. If you don't have honesty, if you don't have integrity, if you don't have any capacity for empathy or warmth or kindness, if, you don't, if you're not dependable, if you have a, a, an ego the size of Mount Rushmore, and what that really turns into is arrogance, you're gonna have a problem for a very long time in your life with everyone. People are not gonna want you to win. They're gonna try to prevent you from winning. And so these are the assets and they are all muscles that have to be developed. And every day, that time you had with your son is an opportunity for you to build, put a little of energy into some of those assets that you think are more important than winning the game and the, uh, the impact that his uh, behavior had at the end on how maybe he was making others feel. And so he has a little bit of an understanding. So every moment is teachable with the gold standard of health in a human being is the way in which they interact and try and, um, and connect with other human beings.
0: So I love, I love what you're saying and I wanna, I wanna restate it in a certain way, which is you're not saying that winning isn't important. You're saying winning at all costs is not important. And that the priority is how you show up and the way in which you play the game with character. And then second is within that boundary, try to win because it might be fun to win. You want to win and et cetera, but not with any hint of compromising on your character because that you will end up regretting.
1: So the key is, you you said it exactly right, that the key is who you're becoming in the chase to win. You want to win, but there are lots of ways to win. You can win by cheating. You can win by, I mean, there's a lot of ways to the top of the mountain. But what you're saying is, or what I'm saying in my work, is I wrote a book called The Only Way to Win. And the only way to win is to win with character. And the only way to lose is to lose with character. Because in the long run, sustainable success will come in that in that context. So more important than the chase is who you become in the chase. That's the bottom line for me.
0: You talk about these moral character attributes like kindness, love, honesty, gratitude, generosity, patience, trustworthiness. Um, I'm. Uh, it may seem obvious, but I'm curious how you came up with the list.
1: Well, um, you know this whole area of character development has been around for decades, for centuries, you know, since Aristotle and Mm. Socrates and everything else that there's always been. And there are people who have, even in uh, Marty Seligman and many others have gotten into this character space to kind of look at it. And what I did is I reviewed all the literature that I could find um, that dating back as far as you could go. And I looked at all the things that people were saying were the most important when they really got to the end of their lives, and I there I made a distinction between performance character and ethical and moral character. I was always confused when a coach would say, "Well, they really played with character this evening or this afternoon," and I'm going, well, "How does that work?" Well, what they were talking about are performance assets. Like fo- they were focused, they gave 100 percent of their effort. They were very positive. And that, so I selected 25 out of the, there are many, many more that I thought were the most important on the performance character side, and then 25 on the moral and ethical character side. And I define all of them, and I define them as either performance or moral. And then I talk about how do you build these in yourself, with your family, or in a business, and what are the concrete ways you can invest energy to build these muscles. And... Uh, so, But it's so interesting that you can have a massive portfolio of performance assets, these performance competencies like focus and you know, 100% effort and discipline and time management and on and on and on. And that will enable you to be an unbelievable achiever. You're gonna have incredible achievement um, on your resume but you if you don't have the other assets on the moral and ethical side you may have holes in your moral and ethical character large enough for an 18 wheeler to drive through mm-hmm. and so you know and really the gold standard at the end of your life will not be how many mountains you you scaled but who you became and you know in that character space will probably be the highest order you never see walk through a cemetery and see what you see on the tombstones. Four gold medals, um, the, the, the best uh, soccer player uh, for two decades, none of that. What's on the tombstones? And, the, and so often, I, I ask you to develop your tombstone and write your eulogy. Let's go to the end of your life and find out what does getting home really mean for you. And then let's work backwards. And that is a huge wake-up call for most people.
0: One of the challenges is that um, when, when, like, what you're saying is 100% true in terms of tombstones and how people want to be remembered. And yet, when people describe other people, right, and especially other people who've achieved stuff. They very rarely say, "Oh yeah, here was this person who had like was great with their family and had great moral character." They go, "No, he ran so and so company, or this guy, did, yeah, he won three gold medals." Or he, like the way that we characterize or think about people in the world is often based on their extreme accomplishments, and and yet I agree with you a hundred percent. The the character we bring to our lives is how we experience our lives and people close to us experience us. But it's not the way as a society that we celebrate. No, we got a very our...
1: different scorecard in society, but if you were to ask your children to describe their father, they're not or your or their mother. They're not going to say, "Well, my dad ran a 2 a 212 marathon." Right? They're going they're going to say, "My dad was an extraordinary person. Uh I felt like he was an inspiration to me my whole life. And it will be the connection, the way in which you made them feel and the way you walked in this world with honor and gave them an opportunity to be a really solid human being. So society may remember you for all of your, you became a CEO, you became one of the wealthiest people on the planet on and on and on. You died with an estate worth 40 million. That's how that's, you know, the, the society says, oh, you were a great success, but let's dig into the real person here and your family will tell you where the success really is and what really mattered to them.
0: So what you're saying, uh, too, which I think is interesting, is don't get um, distracted by the cultural celebration of your success. Measure yourself by how the people you are closest to think of you.
1: A hundred percent. And measure what what became of you as a consequence of you achieving all those great things. They all had an effect on you. And I just wanna know who you became to get that CEO position. What did you have to do? What compromises did you have to make? And who did you... uh, if at all, I mean, who did you have to trample to get there, and how do you feel about the way in which you, uh, you know, that you made it to the top? I deal with a lot of CEOs—not a lot, but I have with executives and CEOs from some of the largest Fortune 50 companies, and it's—I have this conversation with them all the time, and it really is quite interesting because they have been really their whole life wanting to be the CEO and. And they have the same kinds of feelings that the athletes often have. I just, I'm not sure. And then there's this whole thing about an imposter phenomenon, I'm not sure. I think I got here by luck. I don't know how it happened, but I, I did it. And I, I wish I could somehow feel like I deserve this. And then they make all kinds of decisions out of fear that someone might end up finding out that they really are not as competent So they make a lot of bad decisions to cover up what they think uh, is the truth about them and that is that they got the job and they probably shouldn't have because they're not nearly as competent as others think they are
0: you talk about character in a way that makes me wonder whether it's really as black and white like you know there's obvious gaps in character by people who, you know, Bernie Madoff, Harvey Weinstein, Enron, Volkswagen, WeWork, Theranos, like there's a million examples of these things. But it also seems like there might be gray area in more uh, subtle situations, um, framing things in a way that's subtly more positive. Like you're gonna, you know, you want a decision to be made and so you sort of just frame it in a way that makes it more likely that someone's gonna make the decision. Or, um, or sharing information with, with a bunch of people, but not necessarily with everybody, which might be an oversight or it might just be an efficiency thing or it might be an ethics thing or or um, you know, or, or hiring someone that sounds like you and that looks like you and you haven't done the unconscious bias work. And, and I guess my question is, is that certainty, is the character certainty elusive? Is it really black and white? Is it, uh, i love your perspective on that. So
1: in the book, I outlined 25 ways, all of which have anchors in the research world that our moral and ethical decision-making can be hijacked. One of them is motivated blindness, for instance, that you want a particular outcome, you'd like for it to be this way. And so you begin to unconsciously, you can't do it consciously, but you unconsciously begin to bring all the stuff that supports what you want, and you avoid all the stuff looking at the things that actually, this is what happens in politics. It's right. probably the best example of this, where right. you already have a bias, and you make sure that the, anything that comes in that doesn't fit that, you call it you know, um, misinformation or disinformation, and you don't even consider it. And anything that supports what you already believe kind of intuitively or believe inside, you allow that to actually come into your neural processing system and it supports So you build it. So we are very complex human beings. And what I came to learn was that our human morality system is tragically flawed. It is absolutely amazing that we ever make good decisions because there's so many forces operating that are out of our awareness that actually can you know really hijack our ability to make really solid good ethical decisions. Mm-hmm. And so the book is about trying to resurrect our awareness to bring this into full consciousness that we are our system is flawed. There's so many holes in this moral ethics and that's why people make and I can only say that you know, a couple of years in politics and whatever great character you had is gone. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, you become part of a system that's totally broken, totally corrupt, and it's all about power and greed and control. And, you know, I don't, I don't care how good you are when you get into that system, you're going to be tarnished. Unless you have a personal credo that you are working on every day and you vet this decision or this choice that you're making, very, very consciously. And it almost drives you crazy because you realize after a while how flimsy the system is. You're always trying to get what you want and always trying to maneuver and manipulate the data so that you can have it and still feel good, as Dan Arley said, we wanna get away with as much as we can and still feel good about ourselves. So we'll demonize the opposition. We'll say that they deserve it even if it isn't exactly right. We'll, we'll make up crap all the time, just so we can get the conclusion we want. And then we treat others the way we should never treat them or say things, even though we know it's not true, we say it's for a higher purpose. We're gonna do this because it actually is good for mankind and it's it's better than if I tell the truth. And then all of a sudden truth gets lost. You really don't even know what the truth is anymore. What you're doing is you're operating off faulty, data and when you have faulty data going into this neural processor between your ears you're going to get faulty outcomes and faulty decisions so the whole book is based on this notion that we have really got to take control of this system if we don't we're going to end up a lot of times in the wrong place because it is terribly flawed
0: we have been talking with jim lair he has written the book most recently leading with character he's a performance uh, psychologist He's written Powerful Engagement. This is the end of part two of our three-part conversation. So I've not done this before. I've never extended a conversation past two parts, but I love Jim so much and I'm having so much fun. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. And for those of you listening, please stay tuned for part three, where we're going to talk about how what he does as a performance psychologist and what he does in this book which is how you turn something around how you turn someone around how you shift so that you focus on your character and and you know maybe you haven't been doing it perfectly up until now well well how you how you make that shift how you you know turn maybe a potentially flat or downward spiral into an upward spiral jim thank you so much for being on the bregman leadership podcast
1: no i enjoyed it thank you for having me peter and uh look forward to uh, another conversation
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, then you also might enjoy my newest book, You Can Change Other People. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold or by going to BregmanPartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word. If you've already enjoyed the book and found it useful, consider telling a friend or leaving a review on Amazon. Leaving a review helps retailers recommend the book to others just like you. So it's really helpful. Thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.